Hey yo, Matika here. Welcome back. This week, we are really excited to share the second episode of our live series from Santa Monica College. This is a really special series, and especially because it features music by KP from Black Belt Eagle Scout. Yeah, it was so cool. They were there with us live the whole time, um, providing the the interludes and the before and after. It it just changed the entire tone of the day. It was amazing. Um, Good vibes. Oh, yeah. Hi, it's Adrian. <laughs> uh, so in our last episode, we talked with Sterling Harjo and Ryan Redcorn, and that show is up on the interwebs for your listening pleasure, especially if you're looking for a good laugh. We can barely hold it together the whole time. Um, <laughs> and then this week, we're sharing our conversation with Brooke Pepion Sweeney and Kendra Potter about their documentary, Daughter of a Lost Bird. This film is about Kendra's journey of being a native adoptee and reconnecting with her Lummi family and community. We also talk about the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, and the importance of keeping native children in native families. We're so happy to be sharing this with you, and we hope you enjoy. And before we start the episode, I want to mention a quick plug for the books. My book, Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America, is now available for pre-order. The official launch date is April 25th. So if you would consider pre-ordering, that would make a huge difference in the life of the book. And also Adrian's book, Notable Native People, is also out on shelves now. You can find it wherever you buy books. Woo books. That's very exciting. <laughs> books. <laughs> Woo books. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my relations. Okay. Ready? Yes. Okay. Today we have a really special episode for you. We're talking with Brookster, <laughs> a.k.a. Brook Sweeney. <laughs> we met at a bar in Brooklyn, my favorite <laughs> bar, Bembe, under the Brooklyn Bridge. So fun. And I invited Brooke over for fry bread and she came. <laughs> and all the way to bed And that's how we became I'm not, friends. I'm not, I'm not turning down fry bread. No, <laughs> I ain't eat that. And we also have Kendra joining us. Hi, Kendra. Hi. <laughs> so... Uh, Brooke was actually the producer for season one of All My Relations. So she came out to Tacoma Art Museum with us way back in, what was that, 2018? Yeah, 2018. Like 2021 so when we were um. 25. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so she was what made the magic happen for that first season. But she is also an incredible, amazing documentary filmmaker. So Brooke Sweeney is an enrolled citizen of the Blackfeet Nation and a Bitterroot Salish descendant of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. Uh, she works to tell contemporary Native stories, and her first feature documentary, Daughter of a Lost Bird, was screened last night at the AMR Film Festival and has also been at 30 film festivals. Uh, Brooke was uh, received the award for the Best Emerging Director at the Woodstock Film Festival and won the Groundbreaker Award at the Cleveland Film Festival. The film was the closing night film at the Human Rights Festival, as well as the Native Cinema Showcase at the National Museum of the American Indian in D.C., and is currently being broadcast on PBS on the show America Reframed. Yeah. So welcome, Brooke. Thank you for having me. <laughs> wow, Brookster. I'm really working on my NPR voice today. <laughs> uh, Kendra Melchick Potter is a citizen of the Lummi Nation and is a theater artist, teaching artist, director, and producer. She's also a yoga teacher, so, you know, if we want to do some asanas after this. <laughs> She's also a doula if, you know, you want her to help you deliver your baby <laughs> and a mother. Uh, Kendra is the producer and protagonist of Daughter of a Lost Bird, which we all watched last night. And, you know, Kendra's also like a fabulous actress. So if you want to cast her, <laughs> you can hire me. <laughs> Kendra, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I'm very excited. 
So the topic of our show today is we're going to talk a little bit with Kendra and Brooke um, about Kendra's journey of being a Native adoptee and being um, raised by a non-Native family and her journey of reconnecting to her nation, to her community, which was told through uh, the documentary that she produced with Brooke. So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, Kendra's journey, about what it means to make a film documenting that process, and then focus a little bit about the Supreme Court case that are happening right now with the Indian Child Welfare Act. For the audience, can you just talk to us a little bit about this journey that you've been on? Sure. So for those of you who don't you know, know about the story, Daughter of a Lost Bird really um, is a character-driven documentary that I wanted to make to humanize what often gets, you know, kind of shoved into these um, realms of statistics and numbers and, you know, this depersonalization of our narratives. And at the time that I met Kendra, uh, you know, she was really grappling with, you know, where she came from. And as her friend, I just wanted to help her. Like, I just wanted to help her find out like what community she was from. And at the time, we thought she might have been from Alaska. And I was like, I want to go up there. Let's go up to Alaska. I'd love to visit. Let's do it. It can't be that hard to figure out where you're from, you know, like really naively kind of jumping in head first. But when we really and earnestly started talking about making a film and, you know, Kendra sometimes says it's me, I feel like it's maybe a little bit her, but really Kendra thinks it's me that was like, no, let's make a film about this. Okay, (laughs) fine. Yeah, but at the time, like, there weren't really any other films about this adoption experience of, you know, Native people, either in Canada or in the United States. I mean, Alanis Obamsawin did this amazing documentary called uh, Richard Cardinal, Diary of a Métis Child, Mm -hmm. and really tragic, like, heart-moving experience. But that was specifically about this foster care situation, which, you know, I don't want to conflate, you know, those stories because, you know, they are different, but there are there are some commonalities there. But when we started talking about making the film, there there weren't any other films. And now, you know, because we're slow, like two other films got finished before we <laughs> finished. You weren't but, slow. You were following the journey. Yes, we were following it, it the took journey. a long time. Yeah, and ten then our... Years. Yeah, ten, ten years so now. Years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you're interested in watching the, these other films, which I recommend, they're um, Dawnland and Blood Memory. But anyway, you know, we... Um, we, we didn't have the mystery of where Kendra came from because she knew, right? You want to talk a little bit about that? About where I came from? Yeah. Yeah. You knew what tribe you were from. Like Eventually. that wasn't a question. Right, right. Well, when yeah. we started filming. Right. Is that true? Yes. No, no. <laughs> oh. We, so the first thing that we shot was also, I, I say that Brooke wanted to make the documentary and, um, and then we decided to make it when I was eight months pregnant with my first child. And so a lot of the impetus to go on this journey for me was for that baby, was so that my child would know a lot more than I knew. And at that point, I think we still, I still thought that I was a, probably Alaska Native. But after she was born in like five or five months after she was born, we found out that I was Lummy and that my birth mother was, in fact, open to meeting. And so that was like then from that point forward, we did have that information. But we had like had a couple of shoots before that happened. So we knew we knew my tribe. We knew the birth mother. We knew that the April. birth mother was also adopted. We out. knew that she was also adopted out mm-hmm. and raised by a white family. And then... A few months after that, I called her for the first time. And and then we were like off to the races because she's amazing and was very also very generous, incredibly generous with her story. And I think that's something that's like ancestral and her like hereditary really with your family on, you know, that that side of your family. You know, your grandfather was this um, very open, you know, cultural leader that would go out and share stories and be kind of this public figure. And in a way, I see both you and April kind of following in that footsteps of sharing your story and sharing your experience. Um, And April is 
Kendra's book. Birth, 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 birth. Month. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Can I just say that in the film when you were eight months pregnant and um, Brooke, you say like this would be the first time that you would meet your bro- your blood relatives while mm-hmm. you were carrying that baby. Mm-hmm. I just felt this like incredible like twinge inside of me of uh, what that must feel like for you to to be having that experience, to be growing your first blood relative and then to go on this like very scary and vulnerable journey very publicly is very brave, Kendra. I have relatives that have been adopted out that uh, under similar circumstances. And I, after watching your film and crying for like 30 minutes afterwards, <laughs> I really had to like think if I was doing the work in my own life of being a good relative to those those cousins that I've that have been wanting to reconnect with our family and haven't known how. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a, a lot of us, because of the statistics, like you talked about, Brooke, because of how many of our children were adopted out, you know, like we all in tribal communities have the work to do around this, around this reconnection. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, I'm not surprised that you have that experience. I'm, I have multiple adoptees and, you know, adopted out or adopted in stories just within my own family. And then, and then on top of that, you know, I think as Native people, we're all dealing with some sort of grappling of our identity because of assimilation, you know, because of the systemic removal of of our ourselves from our ways of knowing and ways of, you know, living in the world. So I think we can all identify a little bit with what, you know, Kendra is going through. You know, we all kind of like search for our identity in our in our lives. And that's really what I wanted to kind of tap into is that is really that, you know, how do we how do we see ourselves and how do we find belonging? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think for folks who are listening and folks in the audience who don't know the context of what we're even talking about. So in uh, the 1950s, there uh, was something called the Indian Adoption, Adoption project. project, which the purpose of that project was um, to take Native children out of Native homes, adopt them into white families for the purposes of assimilation. Um, those were the stated goals. And that was a continuation of these policies and practices that had been happening for generations to Indigenous folks with the history of the government-run boarding schools, where the uh, policies at those schools was to kill the Indian and save the man. The idea was to eradicate the culture from these Native children, and therefore they'd assimilate into uh, mainstream white society and no longer be the Indian problem. And so during that period of time, and obviously these folks can speak more to that too, but I think the statistics are something like 25 to 35% yes. of Native homes had one or more children removed or in the system. Mm-hmm. So over a quarter of Native homes had Native children removed or put into foster care. And I believe it's like 85% of those children were adopted into non-Native homes. Mm-hmm. And so in 19, what year was ICWA? 74? 1978. 78. So in 1978, there was something called the Indian Child Welfare Act that was passed. And that was a policy designed to stop this process and to ensure that Native children stayed in Native homes, in Native communities, in Native families. And what that law says is that uh, the, well, well, I mean, I mean, the the stated goal of the law is to keep Native kids tied to their tribes yes. because, um, you know, a lot what a lot of people don't understand, but probably what a lot of our audience and you podcast listeners know is that Native people are not an ethnic minority. We are a political minority. We have our own citizenship, you know, with our own nations. And it's really preserving that government to government sovereign relationship. And that was also kind of like a motivation behind the film was to, you know, underscore that, you know, we as Native people have a right to stay tied to our tribe. And that doesn't matter if you then become adopted by a white family. You should still have, and you lawfully ought to, and, you know, through all of our treaties, you know, with the United States, we have the right to maintain that dual citizenship or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, 
so this is something that's like fundamentally a part of the law. Uh, the law also is like trying to preserve that cultural identity by keeping, you know, Native kids tied with their families. Um, and, you know, it goes into those kinship systems of being adopted by your grandparents or, you know, a great auntie or a great uncle or, you know, whoever it is or cousins or whatever, that we're, we're still a part of these families, even though there are heartbreaking moments where children can't be raised by their biological parents. But there is that community that is there to support the Native child. And the other thing about ICWA, um, the Indian Child Welfare Act, that is important is that, you know, a lot of people who work in the social welfare system believe that it's the gold standard. And, and and it's just because of that idea of keeping children in kinship. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, Native kids or not, across all adoptions and fostering, they really, you know, see that that idea of kinship and staying in community as being important. I mean, um, you can look up more of the statistics, but the National Indian Child Welfare Association has done a lot of research around what happens when kids are removed. And it's, you know, it's not good stuff. It's low self-esteem. It's addiction problems. You know, it's like all of these poor, you know, what they like to call poor outcomes. But it's really like that ripping apart of, of identity that is so tragic and shouldn't happen. It should be preserved. And I definitely want to come back to ICWA and what's happening in the Supreme Court. But I just wanted to, like, give the the context for those um, folks who didn't even know, like, where this story is coming from. Um, and Kendra, your family didn't even fall under ICWA because both your mother and you did not have the have a tribal affiliation at the time of adoption, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's a very public learning curve that I've been <laughs> on. But as I've been learning more and more, I've realized that there have to be so many more people like me because of the Indian Adoption Project. So many people from my generation fell under the cla- under the cracks because our parents were not they were eligible but they were not tribal citizens and so the act only applies to children who have who who are who are citizens of their or have the right to be citizens mm-hmm. of their nation so because my birth mother was adopted out of community into a white family and did not have paperwork um saying that she was Lummi, there was no tribe for her to identify when she put me up for adoption. Also, interestingly, and I, I don't know the exact number, but statistically, adopted children have a higher percentage of giving their children up for adoption as well. So unfortunately, it was a very successful strategy that we are up against in this movement towards trying to reclaim identity because it worked, unfortunately, pretty darn well and to extreme detriment. Hmm. Yeah. So, Kendra, tell us a little about the process, you know, from 10 years of filming to where we're at now. Uh, Yeah. So when my daughter was five months old, I got a letter from the adoption agency saying we have updated health information for you. And please call us at your earliest convenience. Then I called thinking, you know, it could be the worst. Like maybe they were calling to say that my birth parents were dead. Maybe they were calling to be like, you're destined to get like 19 types of cancer. Like I didn't know what the conversation was. But I called and they it was like some new hereditary information that was also manageable. And in that conversation found out that my birth mother was Lummy and open to meeting me. So then we had this. I, I am like, I come by it honestly, but I'm terrible at paperwork, like ex- <laughs> exceptionally terrible at paperwork, <laughs> as is April. So the process was very long and slow for this reason. Um, with the closed adoptions, you have to, at least the way that my adoption worked, she had to fill out paperwork saying she was open to meet me. And then I also had to fill out this paperwork. But legally, the agency couldn't say, she wants to meet you. Would you like to meet her? They had to wait for us independently to reach out to the agency and say, we would. Li- I would like to meet her if she ever wants to meet me. So that was like, 
how many people, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big, scary thing to say, because you're opening yourself up to the potential for rejection, right? And I didn't want to put myself in a situation where up to that point, first of all, paperwork's hard. Secondly, Paperwork is hard. (laughs) Thank you. Paperwork is very hard. It's so hard hard. to check boxes and sign things. There's an envelope and a stamp. Maybe you have to scan it. I can't. I can't do it. Um, I have birthday cards from like five years ago that are written, written beautiful messages, stamped, (laughs) just sitting, (laughs) sitting. Anyways, um, so I had to. So I had to like fill out the super hard paperwork and then. The risk of putting that out there and having her say no or not wanting to interrupt her life. If, you know, I didn't know the circumstances around my adoption. I didn't know if it was a terrible experience for her. I didn't know um, what the circumstances around conception were. I didn't know if I was, you know, the result of a rape or some something really painful. So I didn't want to intrude. And also there was, she was a child. She was, I mean, she was 17. Mm. So I, I wanted to be deeply respectful of her experience. And I was also terrified of rejection. So I wrote her this letter that was very slow, but I worked on it every day. Like I had, it was like an open uh, app in my phone, in my notes. And every day I lived in New York at the time and on the subway, I would just like rewrite and rewrite and edit and think about like, at this point I was, you know, I'm a mother and was thinking like, what if I knew nothing? What is the stuff that I would want to know? But also because I don't know anything about her life, what, what might be too much information, you know? Can I ask you, Kendra, what was in the letter. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, it was really, I was like trying to stay vague and also give clues to character. And so I think I listed, there was one paragraph that was like every natural body of water I had swum in. <laughs> um, and um, of course, so Kendra, right? Uh, so I was like, yeah, so I was like, I've been in the Pacific, the Atlantic. I've been in the Caribbean. I've been in this water. I, I love swimming in rivers. Not a big lake person, but I'll do it because <laughs> I because um yeah so so I talked about that I said uh, really all I want to do like the big thing is thank you thank you for my life and you know she could have she could have made a different choice with the pregnancy and so I'm you know super glad to be here and I said I, I don't I have an excellent mom I'm not I don't need a mom but I would love to have a relationship at whatever capacity feels appropriate for you. And of course, I have questions, but I don't demand answers. You know, I tried to be very like what April's language um, is that she holds me with an open palm. And it's like the best to not feel like there's the, the like normal obligatory parent-child relationship doesn't apply to us in a way that I feel such gratitude for because it makes it really easy to love her exactly how she is and feel loved by her exactly how I am. It's like the best. I'm the luckiest person. So that was in the letter. Then it took her, because paperwork is hard, it took her (laughs) six months to write back to me. And that letter was so big. It was, oh God, it was so big. And she, she said when I was born, she said it was a really easy, good birth and that she and I had had a conversation while she was pregnant. She had said like, okay, this is going to be easy and you're going to come out fast and it's not going to hurt too bad. And she was like, and you did. And it it hurt, but it was fast. <laughs> and she said that she had read somewhere during her pregnancy that that breastfeeding was good for the baby. So even though I was born and they took me away right away, which is at, at the time, I don't know how it is now, but at the time when you were putting when you were giving a baby up for adoption, the idea would be that it was like too painful to see the baby. So they would like take me out of the room to the nursery. And she was like, and I just got up and waddled down the hallway and got you and brought you back. And I breastfed you for three days. And every time I'd fall asleep, they would take me away, take take the baby away. And she would go back and get the, get me and bring me back and nurse me. And I, I mean, also I'm a birth doula. So I was like, what? I had, I got colostrum. <laughs> she gave me breast milk. 
And it was so, uh, I mean, just that, that act of, I mean, the act of like carrying a child to term, knowing that she was not in a good state to, and she, she wasn't, I'm, we're both very clear that, um, me growing up not in her home was the right thing. But the generosity of heart that she had to put herself through, whatever that was, was really profound. And then it took us, I feel like it was like another six months or so before we met. I I had a a cousin, an adoptive cousin was getting married in Washington. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be like two hours from Portland. So I live in Montana but we were going to be close to Portland where she lived. And so we decided to meet and um, we see that you see that in the documentary the first time we met, which I'm so grateful. April there loves was, to say, who gets, who to, gets do to do this? Who, who gets, gets to, to do, do this? this? <laughs> um, she and there was a phone call too. I called her a few months after I got that first letter. Then we met. And the who gets to do this is like, who gets to have this recorded mm-hmm. yeah. moment of one of the most impactful moments in her life that yeah. she can go back and revisit mm-hmm. and be able to feel that moment again. And there's, you know, for those of you who haven't seen the film, they embrace when they first see each other and you hear this, this, these heartbeats and the heartbeats is actually Kendra's lavalier microphone picking so up. Actually yeah, both, people always think that it was like a, a sound design, yeah. but it wasn't. But it's it not. was like it's oh their, magic. It's their heartbeats. We should that have left the chills. crinkling in of the of the lava so sound. Powerful. But it's hear, really powerful. Like the heartbeat getting faster and faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds and then you know, slowing. it sounds like a freaking yeah. Doppler listening to a baby in and utero. Then, yeah. It gets faster and then it gets slower. And you can kind of hear like my heart. Obviously, and then you can hear her heart, and then our hearts like sink. It was oh a really God. special moment. And when I can't believe that's real, I thought that one hundred percent. I've seen the film three times now, and I one hundred percent thought that that was like a, a sound. sound no, design. it was yeah. not designed. No, wow. it's just that's it was just, just real. Magic. It's just, just real magic. It's what yeah. happens when you I hug mean, someone, guys. <laughs> you hug someone, and your hearts sink up. Um, but you have to hold each other for a long time. It's got to be a long hug. <laughs> long it's got to be a Kendra April type hug. Yeah. But um, the kind of hugs I'm not comfortable with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Don't be sticking like, your heart up with my heart, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just on a re- regular Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to co-regulate with Matika. In that hug way. me from the okay. side. <laughs> Maybe we can link up spleens then. <laughs> yeah, hopefully our spleens will be caught on the level here. Yeah. Making- <laughs> <laughs> I do feel though like one of the one of the unique experiences of this this story um was that she because she is also an adoptee, she had met her, she reunited with her birth parents when she was 34 years old. So she uniquely understood what I was going through because she had also done it. And when I met her, I was 34, which is also like, wow, that's neat. So when I asked her in our first phone call, I told her, you know, I'm making this documentary. My friend and I are are shooting this doc and you absolutely are not obligated to be a part of it. But I do want to let you know that I will definitely be talking about my feelings about us and about our conversation. And she was like, oh, my God, yes, no, like, please put me on speaker right now if you're recording. Like, I'm in, I'm in, whatever you want. And and I said, really? And then when we were planning to meet, I said, you know, we're going to, I will have cameras. They don't have to film us. They can, you know, we can do like a post-meeting interview or something if we want. And she was like, no, bring cameras. I would, I would, I would give anything to have footage of the first time I met my father and be able to look back. And I look back at the photos of that day regularly. So by all means, please document as much as you want. And I feel like that was such a gift for Mm. this film. And I really feel like her contribution to the story is is really where a lot of the impact well it's it's the layers of you know these generational stories Mm -hmm. too from a filmmaking standpoint when she came we were like oh she's going to be another protagonist Mm -hmm. like she's the protagonist Mm -hmm. but you know it's still Kendra's story it's like a two it's a two person it's a two-hander but Yeah. yeah and then we went to Lummy and we went for Stomish 
Which, for those of you who don't know, is this big water festival celebrating the return of warriors. And it's pretty awesome. Got to get to see a lot of canoes. A lot I wouldn't of call it a festival. When you think well, of festival, you think of like... There is a carnival, <laughs> But I, I also was reflecting when you said that in that letter you wrote about the bodies of water you've mm-hmm. been in, like just the fact that you as a person who grew up without any knowledge of what it meant to be Lummy mm-hmm. still had in you like Lummy are water people. Mm-hmm. That is where you come from mm-hmm. and that you felt of all the things you could write to your birth mother that that was something important to include. Yeah. It's just like like I don't even know how to process that. Like that's so beautiful. Yeah, to me. it's pretty it's pretty amazing. I have several friends who are adopted. My my brother, my adoptive brother was also adopted and is in reunion with his family. He is not native. And he reunited first. And when they met, it was like, I was watching him and his birth mother talking. And it was like, you like pizza? Oh, my God, I like pizza. <laughs> like, like you're constantly looking for similarities. You're constantly looking for something to, to hold on to. And and that's a very common thing when when we meet a relative that we did not know. But the stuff that April and I have found in common that feels like deep, you know, Mm -hmm. aside from like our loathing of paperwork. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the water. And she talked about when she met or when she got her letter from Chattiskatum from her grandfather. Her father. Or her father, my grandfather. And it started with, I hope this talking paper finds you well. And um, he talked about the water also. And the first, the day that she met him, he like took her out to the bay and was like, when the tide goes out, our table is set and it comes in and our table is cleared. And talking about the the way that the bay is a part of who we are. And she and I are both like, yeah, independently have found that water is the place where we go to like clean it off and clear the heads and and to this day whenever whenever I go back to Lummi it's like I don't feel like I've landed until my bare feet are in that water Hmm. well thanks Kendra that's really beautiful we're going to take a short break when we come back we're going to talk about Iqwa Mm -hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about uh, where we're at now and then we're going to wrap it up yourself in that song <laughs> real quick. Sure. <laughs> I was going to play another song, but I decided to play this one because it uh, has water in it. And mm-hmm. it, and I wrote it about the Skagit River, which is just, you know, a part of the Coast Salish Territory homelands. Uh, my name's KP and 
This is my band project, Black Belt Eagle Scout. I feel very honored to be here amongst such strong women. And so to be here is really special to me. Um, yeah, we're relatives, so yeah. <laughs> and that song's called On the River. I wrote it about the Skagit River and the feeling of wanting to be home on the water. Mm. Yeah. We're all going to cry. <laughs> I was like, I know what song I'm going to play. <laughs> Thank you, KP. Okay, let me stop crying. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kendra, um, for sharing so much of your story and Brooke for being witness to this story. And I think before we end our episode, I want to make sure that we do bring it back to the conversations around ICWA that are happening right now. So the United States Supreme Court just heard oral arguments in Brackeen versus Holland, which is a combination of four different challenges to the Indian Child Welfare Act. And we as a group are filmmakers and Native people and scholars and writers and uh, photographers, but uh, we are not experts in the legal arena. And there is an amazing podcast that we want to like plug that is not ours. Um, that is uh, This Land by Cherokee um, journalist Rebecca Nagel. And her second season of the podcast uh, follows these cases and lays all, all of the legal um, background, all of the stories of the cases. So we really encourage uh, those folks listening and the audience to um, listen to that season um, because we can't do justice in the next like 10 minutes of, of the background of the case. Um, but it's so good. So it's, good. it's just so, so well reported. So, so good. good. <laughs> you got to listen to it. It's, I mean, it's 10, it's 10 episodes. Mm -hmm. It's a, uh, like fully dedicated to this court case. And you meet so many people that are active in the court case. And it's wild. It's a wild story. And it's really well told. So everybody go listen to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But basically at the Supreme Court right now is um, these cases are trying to overturn ICWA. They're basically making the argument that Native tribes are racial groups, that we are not political entities, and that the law constitutes racial discrimination against non-Native families that would like to adopt Native children. And Brackeen is a family. Yeah, right? I mean, we can yeah. tell them. Just really quickly, <laughs> is a family that wants to keep a child that's... But, they're, but, the, but they were but allowed the weird, to. The weirdest part is that they were already allowed to. So as far like and this was part of the arguments, you know, um, that if you listen to the Supreme Court oral arguments of the case on November 9th, that the case was already decided. So procedurally, why is that case still even there? And the reason why is because they have huge, huge powers behind them. You know, they have the state of Texas. They have like, which is also a state that doesn't really have a lot of Native, Native representation yeah. in it in as Texas. part of the fifth district. Um, and so, you know, you can get into a lot of that, but it, it's really like digging into states' rights, which as we know, you know, from um, from history and the civil rights yeah. is really about racism. Right. <laughs> Uh, ultimately, uh, and then uh, and and then uh, and then it's supported by the oil and gas mm -hmm. industry. So you know, it's not it's not about kids. It's about taking land. Some, yeah. To sum it up, it's about eroding tribal sovereignty. Because if tribes are considered to be racial groups and not political entities, then tribal sovereignty is doesn't exist. Like why why would sovereignty exist if we're just a racial group? Um, and so this a lot of uh, folks in Indian country see this uh, case as being the first step in eroding everything that tribal sovereignty stands on. Um, and so without getting into the like specifics of the legal arguments and things, like I read the transcripts of the oral arguments and they are like, it's just so hard, hard to yeah. read. Yeah. Um, it was hard to listen to. It, so hard. <laughs> like the amount of like deeply held stereotypes that the Supreme Court justices have about like the that native homes are like lacking, like mm. bringing up stereotypes of like savage natives on the plains fighting each other before contact, like just horrible things. But the underlying idea is that like somehow one, like native homes are lacking and that um, children should be uh, raised in homes that are like, quote unquote, better in some way. And then um, also this argument that what if a child and I can't remember which justice said it, but like, what if a child doesn't want to be considered Indian? Uh, like, what if they don't want to be like considered uh, Indian under the law? And that 
line I just fixated on of like, what do you mean if a child doesn't want to be considered Indian? And so I think I would love to hear like kind of from the personal perspective of like, why do Native children need to stay in Native homes? Like, what does it mean for you, Kendra, like growing up disconnected, thinking about how, what is the importance? What would have been different, you know? Something that that was really, I was like glued on November 9th to the oral arguments and um, and was like, self-care, self-care, you know? Yeah. So I was like on a sheepskin, like all snuggled up in my best pajamas <laughs> and had like, six beverages in front of me <laughs> listening and and trying to stay calm and only periodically like yelling at my mm-hmm. laptop but what was fascinating to me and challenging is that i feel like my own steep learning curve journey of being raised white identifying white you know 9 years ago to this point where I'm like on a podcast called All My Relations (laughs) and what that trajectory has been and understanding the amount of patience and the burden that it has been on my friends and um, on my friends and loved ones to patiently inform me, wait for me to get there, hold me when I figured it out, and then inform me some more, like give me more information. And the amount of ignorance that I had that was not my fault, but was there, right? And then listening to the Supreme Court and the way that these justices were asking questions and thinking, gosh, this is, I mean, they just, they fundamentally don't understand. And on one hand, that is obviously designed to be this way. And they are experts in U.S constitutional law, and therefore not experts in Native identity (laughs) and in Native ways of being, Indigenous ways of being. And so it's important to me because in my learning curve, my children know more than I do already, Mm. like all the way already. My daughter has never not been Native. Mm. And and the way that that manifests in her showing up in the world is huge. It's huge. And it's like, I have, you know, little jokes about how uh, the first, she she loves communicating in emojis. She texts me in emojis from my husband's phone. And before she could spell she would text like a a little emoji of a little girl heart and an emoji of an adult woman and she was always more brown than me (laughs) she's she's like you're still figuring it out mom but like I know I know that I'm brown I know that I'm native so in my own like identity confusion I still have come to a place where I understand that I want my children to grow up in a Native family. And I feel like that's kind of, you know, not that I feel like I should be sitting at the Supreme Court arguing, but I do feel like that's really the thing is like, look, I am a, I am an example of assimilationist policies. I am a perfect example of it. I, I was white, <laughs> I thought. Um, and and did not understand the value of what I did not have. I did not have a comprehension of what was missing and had said to one of our producers on the film at one point that I felt like my my Native friends looked at me like a three-legged dog sometimes, and I was like, but why does it matter? Like, I know how to get around. I'm getting around fine. I might be missing this Native identity element, but I'm functioning fine. And the more I have learned, the more I have realized what that limb is mm-hmm. and and that it's really not just a limb it's like a heartbeat so i feel very strongly that while i don't begrudge my adoption i don't begrudge the way my parents raised me i do feel deeply that the circle has the circle of my children knowing their ancestral land 
learning what we can teach them and recognizing that it's not going to stop with them. You know, I'm enrolled, but because of blood quantum, my children are both descendants. And when I came home with my card, when I finally enrolled and I showed my enrollment card to my kids, she like got so excited and my son gave me this huge hug and they were like, you did it, mama, you finally did it. And um, and then she was like, when do I get mine? Oh, and I was like, baby, I'm ah, I'm so sorry. You're going to you're a descendant. You're not going to you're not going to enroll because we have a 20, you know, unless maybe the rules will change. Maybe, you know, maybe the tribe will change their minds. And <laughs> you know what she said, because she's a, the child of a doula and she knows things. <laughs> and she was like, so you're telling me. Okay, so I just have to go get some sperm from a lummy man. <laughs> and I was we like, have a whole episode about what? that. On the <laughs> what? I can help her find some. <laughs> she, she, she was like, if I get some sperm from a lummy man, then my kids can be lummy. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And my son was like, I'll have some sperm. And I was like, okay, okay. Like, not you, not you, buddy. But but this this um, you know my children understand more than I do, and and they're still not going to have as much as they could have. But that's why I think that ICWA is important. I think Native children should be raised in Native families. A hundred percent. Because. Because of so many reasons. So many reasons. So many reasons. Well, let's just talk yeah. about before we wrap up. Uh, Let's just talk a little bit about how people can be in support of ICWA and what they can do right now in their own lives to advocate in meaningful ways. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, despite the fact that, you know, the Supreme Court justices are off in their like, you know, wood paneled offices noodling around about, you know, our futures, right. like curmudgeoning, curmudgeoning and like typing and I don't know, like sipping their coffee and just, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they do. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. That's what they're doing. <laughs> Shuffling yeah, around in their robes, you know, like they're like wrinkly robes. Um, no. <laughs> they're just spending their time ironing their robes. Yeah, that's all they're doing is ironing their robes. <laughs> um, so what, what can we no, do? What we can do. What we can do is, um, you know, there's this Protect ICWA campaign that is kind of a joint effort of the National Indian Child Welfare Association, along with the Native American Rights Fund. And I think, I believe, like, Illuminative maybe is also involved. Uh, but you can sign a petition there to continue to support you know, and show your support of the law, that the law of the land should remain the law of the land. Um, so I encourage you to go to Protect ICWA um, on Instagram, Instagram. And I think you can also Google it. They have a website, I believe. Um, so that's one one way you can reach out to, you know, your uh, like in the worst case scenario that ICWA is overturned. There is still states rights mm -hmm. to go back to states rights and you can go to your California state or Washington state or, you know, whatever state you might be in and demand that there's still continued support for the state ICWA. Now, right. Montana, where we live, actually does not have a state ICWA um, and it should right. um, because we have a very high Native population. And I just have to say shame on Senator Daines, shame, our Republican shame. senator who is on the Senate Committee of Indian F Affairs and did not sign on to the amicus brief in support of the law. So I think, you know, that's a big that's a big alarm bell to our Native communities for our next election to see, you know, really where he lies as far as Native issues. So I'm just going to go public with that about my feelings about <laughs> Senator Daines. In New, New Mexico and Utah, uh, Utah just passed like yesterday yeah. or two days ago, have um, sample laws of how a state can uh, make a state level ICWA. Um, so there's models for other states to follow if they want to make sure that at the state level, this remains the law of the land, New Mexico and Utah. And I don't know if there are other states have done that as well. So there's still hope for protecting Native children <clears throat> in adoption, even if the Supreme Court overturns um, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Yeah. And 
feel I'm going like, to be hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I, I listening to the oral arguments, I feel like they're, I don't know. Why, it's I don't a, it's, it feels it's, like it a real feels toss like up. a real toss yeah, up. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, and it feels like um, my, I mean, my gut is saying, I, I, my hope is that it's not going to be fully overturned, but I think they're going to poke some holes in it, mm-hmm. and that'll be a bummer. Yeah. And with that, I'm going to say thank you so much for being a guest on All My Relations podcast. We're really happy to have you here. Uh, we'll continue to follow your work and support your documentary. And- Which you can watch on PBS right now on mm-hmm. America Reframed. So mm-hmm. I encourage all of you to watch Daughter of a Lost Bird. Mm-hmm. So you join can- us in thanking our amazing guests, Kendra and Brooke. Thank you, well, thank you guys. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all we have for you today, folks. Join us again next week for more live episodes. My hands are raised to Brooke and Kendra for joining us for this important conversation. Thanks, gals. I love you so much. Huge thank yous to Santa Monica College and everyone there who made this possible. Thank you to the AMR team, Jonathan Stein, Max Levin, Teo Shantz, Lindsay Hightower, and Charlie Stavish. Major shout out to KP of Black Belt Eagle Scout for being our live music for the event and to Sierra Sana for original episode artwork. If you want to support the podcast, remember you can sign up to be a patron on Patreon, which we appreciate so much and really is what makes this possible. Um, or if you want, you can write us a review on iTunes and we'd appreciate that as well. So thank mm-hmm. you and we'll be back soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or hit us up on the gram, y'all. <laughs>